Yeah, one, of the, one summary, if you were to summarise the Christian faith, there's a number of different ways you could do this, but one beautiful summary, I think, goes something like this, uh, that God calls on us to come to Him, come to Him and find life, but come to Him as you are. But come to Him as you are, aware that you can only come to change. Come to Him as you are, but come for change. It's a beautiful and powerful truth that we're to come to Him as we are. There is one who, who has such a love, such a grace, such a mercy, that He'll have you, whatever you like, whatever your history and baggage, wherever you've been. You don't need to clean it up before you come. He'll have you as you are. But what's beautiful and powerful too is that He wants you to come to Him as you are, that He might transform and change you, that He might make you into something glorious and wonderful. You know, I think that little package answers a very deep need that's evident in our world. It's always been evident, but it's evident most clearly in our recent times. We're living in a world that's very confused, totally confused, about change, actually. Um, you know, do we need change? Does our world think we need change? Because to suggest that we need change, well, that's offensive, isn't it? It's sort of saying that we're not like we ought to be, that there's, you're saying there's something wrong with us? No. Is it Christine Aguilera says that, has that song, I'm beautiful in every way, um, uh, don't put me down, don't let words harm me, I'm now roughly paraphrasing a song, but, <laughs> but I'm beautiful in every way and don't call me out to be otherwise. It's this deep desire to find self-esteem and in a world where there's nothing outside of us, where we now have no, we've cut ourselves off from a spiritual world, from God outside of us, our only hope to find self-esteem is grounded in ourselves. And so our world wants to find strength and security and self-esteem and so it finds it in its own character. So don't tell me there's anything wrong with my character, because that's all I've got. But we are bombarded at the same time with messages about the need to change. Um, we're not what we ought to be. The community keeps telling us this. And I mean trivial things. Our looks, our weight, here's another diet. Here's another fashion magazine saying how you ought to look and how your face ought to be and you need to actually go to the gym and get your body sculptured so that you, because the way you were born and what you look like, the body you're in is not what it ought to be and you need to actually change. People are chasing after the better them all the time in a world where, no, don't tell me I'm anything less than beautiful but you are and you kind of know you are and everyone's telling you are and more deeply we're bombarded with the fact that men need to change because there's toxic masculinity, you are not like you ought to be and women need to change, stop being feminine, you need to actually toughen up and be like men and strength and strong and assertive and powerful, we're all needing to change but at the same time, no, you don't need to change, don't let anyone say you need to change, you're beautiful no matter what they say, you see the confusion? It's a total mess in our world, no wonder our young people growing up are lost and confused and the answer to it is the Christian message. Yes, we need to change but there's a way to find personal security and affirmation and to be loved with an eternal love as you are. By God who will have you come as you are come to change, he wants to change you, but he loves you where you're at. The Christian message has the answers. It really is quite wonderful. Now, in saying all of this, it may sound as if I know the mind of God. I'm claiming that God will have you as you are. Do I know that's true? How do I know that's true? Can we know that's true? 
seems an extraordinary thing to say. Well, I know it's true because God himself has spoken and given us his mind. And in that passage read for us, those two verses, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we have one of the clearest statements about exactly this. As we've been going through Romans, we're now up to chapter 12, and we're going to just focus on two verses because it's one of the most important couple of verses in the book of Romans. And it's so important, you need to memorise it. Well, you need to do what you need to do, but I'm going to tell you what to memorise it. You can ignore me if you like. It's one of the first verses I ever memorised. As a young, when I was converted as a young adult, I started memorising the Bible just to get it in my head. And because I hadn't grown up in a Christian home, hadn't grown up going to church, there was so much I was missing. And this is one of the first verses I memorised. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His pleasing and perfect will. This is a verse to memorise. It's rich and powerful and it actually helps us think about how you can come to God as you are and yet come for change and that's a powerfully wonderful process. It tells you how that happens. Let me go through it with you. There's two verses. The first verse gives the headline. The second is the detail, filling out the headline, if you like. The first verse puts down the big thing. The second kind of expands that big thing. That's the broad structure of these two verses. If you've got your Bible, make sure it's open to these couple of verses. If you've got a phone, you can actually look it up online. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I think it just Googles and it'll turn up. Um, but let me give you the first, the headline. Let's go through it step by step. The headline is there in chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Here is the change that God is after. He wants you to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now that language of sacrifice is well known in the first century. Paul certainly in the Jewish world knew all about sacrifices. It was very clear. It's not so much in our day. Um, but animals were sacrificed on altars all over the place, all the time, especially of course in the Jewish temple. And the key thing about a sacrifice, if you're unaware is that the sacrifice loses its life, yeah? It loses its life to be on the altar to God. See, the, the, the animal was in a, if I need to explain this, but the animal was in a paddock, living its own life, pursuing its own interests and ambitions and what it wanted, how it wanted to pursue things, who it wanted to hang out. It had its whole world that it was living and it was taken against its will, and I'm vegans, I apologise, I didn't do this, right? But someone took it against its will and what's wrong that you're thinking like that anyway, but um, <laughs> you're accepted. <laughs> Fellowship of Christ is broad. Um, <sighs> again, you wonder why you start down a path, but anyway, um, this animal's taken, uh, it's slaughtered, and here's the deal, it no longer can live its life. It, it's taken to now be used for the purposes of God, on the altar. It's finished with the old life. It's dead to that. That's a sacrifice. Now, the point Paul makes is the thing that's necessary in becoming a Christian, essential to becoming a Christian, is that this happens to us. We are laid before the altar. We're laid on the altar. And our life is now to be a sacrifice given over to God 
for him. Dead to self, the old life is gone. Alive to him. Like the sacrifice, who once had its life, that was killed, ended, put on the altar, finished. Old life, finished when you become a Christian. You are now to be put on the altar. But here's the difference. We're still alive when that happens. It's a willing thing. The animal was taken against its will, but we, us, are called to willingly give ourselves as a sacrifice to God. To put myself on the altar. To to die to the old life, to live for Him. To put myself on the altar and stay there. We're the sacrifice, though, that keeps wanting to crawl off, unlike the old one. But every day we're to will the choice to die to self, to die and put myself on the altar before God every morning. Wake up, my life is yours, to be lived for you. Help me by your strength to stay there, in that place, a living sacrifice. Now, why would someone do that? Why would someone turn away from all that they want in life to live for God? Why would you do that? Paul gives the answer and it's a very profound answer. Look there at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice. He's using that language uh, in view of God's mercy to capture up a summary of all that's come before. See, notice how the verse starts with the word, therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore in the New Testament, in the Bible, you always ask the question, what's it? Therefore. Why is it there? Well, it's there to connect the previous thoughts with the thoughts that are about to come. You see, and therefore, in view of God's mercy... Now, other translations have by the mercies of God, but that language, it's trying to translate a little Greek package of ideas that um, whenever Paul uses that same package, he means because of, in view of, is a very good translation of it. Um, So, because of the mercies of God, I urge you to do this. And this is important to reflect on together. Um, Think with me, how has the first 11 chapters been about the mercy of God? Because that's what he's saying. In view of all that I've said about the mercy of God, now, how has it been about the mercy of God? Well, it's easy in the first four or five chapters to see it's been about the mercy of God. The first four or five chapters are a summary of human sin and perversity and our failure to be able to actually be with God. We're under His condemnation. But then, wonderfully, there's an expression of God who comes to give us His Son as a sacrifice of atonement, to pay the debt for us that we might be forgiven, sinful that we are, incredible mercy of God. So that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The penalty of sin's gone. You see in those early chapters a beautiful picture of the mercy of God. But then you get to chapters 9, 10 and 11. The chapters most recent to chapter 12. And you think, how is that about the mercy of God? Now we've, in the last three weeks, gone through those chapters. And for some of you it's been revolutionary. For some of you, you've never noticed chapter 9 in the Bible of Romans. And, and for many, it's been an... In, in fact, one of, uh, one of the guys mentioned uh, during that preaching time that for many people, hitting chapter 9 in Romans is, is the next big growth step they have as a Christian. Because Romans 9 is that place where you actually come 
face to face with the fact we're not God. He is God. We're just the clay in the hands of the potter. And I'm his to do with as he pleases. All humanity is his to do with his pleases. Now that is, that is humbling. It's pride breaking. And I hope you came through that process with us. To be brought to see the truth of who you are in light of God and his might. The great God of the universe. Um, but one of the dangers in that time too is that you can come through all of that left with the impression that this sovereign, great, glorious God who is free to do whatever he chooses with his creatures, us, is whimsical. You know, um, arbitrary. You know, he might harden some, he might soften others, he just, it's a game for him. I'm humble before him, he's God, but I'm left with this impression of a God who just does whatever he wants. And I'm not sure that's a God I want to serve. What I want you to notice is chapter 12, verse 1. How does Paul summarize all of that? In view of God's mercy. Not in view of God's sovereignty, not in view of God's greatness and holiness, but in view of God's mercy. Because for him, the explanation of the predestining sovereign will of God, who's free to do what he chooses, in chapters 9, 10 and 11, lands finally at chapter 11, verse 32. Have a look at 11.32. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience. He's the sovereign God who can harden hearts and do as he pleases. He has bound people as he's chosen. But notice what he says next. So that he might have mercy on everybody. You see, God is not whimsical. God doesn't just arbitrarily. If he is hardening, giving over to, it's for the ultimate purpose that he might bring mercy to a world that refuses to see him. His purpose in hardening the Jews was that the gospel might bounce off them into the rest of the nations to bring the saving news of Jesus to the world. And his purpose in bringing the saving news of the world to the world was that we might, by our response to Jesus, the Jewish king, might cause the Jews to be jealous and bring them to salvation. God is, and that's why verse 33, Paul goes, who would ever have thought of this? God, the God of mercy, who yes, hardens, who's sovereign, but he does it for a purpose, to bring grace and salvation beyond that nation to all nations, then back to that nation. Don't imagine God is arbitrary in this. He's the God who does not delight in the death even of the wicked. Ezekiel 33. He doesn't delight in the death of even the wicked person. He's a God you can trust and love. Who is powerful and sovereign for mercy. You know, if, if I might just apply this to men, young men. One of the dangers is in the youthfulness of uh, a man. Chapter 9 can become this very powerful sense that I'm serving a powerful God and that's, that's compelling. There's, there's riches in there, don't lose that. But in that can be the potential to end up with a God who is arbitrary and cool and aloof. Paul won't have it. He's a merciful God. 
And don't miss this either. What's being said here is something unique of all religions. There have been 11 chapters on the mercy of God, what God has done to make it possible for sinful humans to come as they are and find forgiveness. There's been 11 chapters on that and only after that is a command for us to do something. Now, there's a few little things sprinkled through in chapter 6 and so on. But Paul spends 11 chapters driving home that salvation is based on his work for us, not us. Salvation is about me coming ungodly that I am, not turning over a new leaf to make him accept me. I don't have to do anything to make myself worthy of him. That's been 11 chapters. God receives you as you are. And only after that, in response to that, does he call, us, call on us now to change. This is a fundamental thing that's um, profoundly different to every religion on the planet, actually. No other religion's like this, which tells you again that we're dealing with something that's genuinely from God. Every other religion says, if you want to be accepted by God, you've got to start the process yourself. You've got to do something to make yourself acceptable to him and then he'll begin to help you do even more. But if you, don't, if you don't turn over the new leaf, if you don't get started, if you don't do something to make him at least think of having you, there's no hope. And the Christian faith says, no, you can never earn your way. It's the reverse of, I do good works to come and be received by God. It's the reverse of that. I come and be received by God to do good works. It's profound, the reverse. You see, here's the powerful engine for change in a Christian. Why, why, why does a Christian now want to please God? Why does a Christian now want to say no to sin? You know, if, if the gospel message is, come to him as you are and you can be forgiven no matter your sin, well, why wouldn't I just go on sinning knowing that he can just forgive me? Isn't that a question you end up asking? In fact, you ask it every day as I get tempted and I give myself over to sin. I think, ah, oh, God can just forgive me. It's all okay. They keep saying at church that God doesn't condemn those who are in Jesus. There's no fear of judgment. So I can just keep living the way I want to live. Now, what stops that happening? The mercy of God. In view of the mercy of God. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. And here's something that I, I, I don't think it's possible quite to understand if you're not converted. This is one of those insights that only comes to people who are actually in Jesus. And what I mean by that is this. Um, have you experienced that moment where you are tempted to disobey God, to rebel against God, live in sin, and you find yourself, I can't do that because... It would dishonour my God. Have you found yourself in that moment? That should be the moment that every Christian lives in because what compels us to no longer sin is not the fear of judgment, but the grace and mercy of God who has loved us so much that he gave his only son. He's, he's the Father who has given us everything that I would never want to disobey. Not because I'm afraid of him, but because I want to please him. 
How could I disobey the, the one who has loved me so much? Now, if that's not an instinct in your heart, you've not understood the Christian message. If you do find yourself feeling like, oh, I can just do what I like now, or on Monday I can go and live the way I like, then you've actually not, you, you may not even be converted. You may not even be converted. My wife has loved me. She has, she has treated me in ways that I don't deserve. She has been gracious and generous to me in ways I don't deserve. What stops me being unfaithful to her? It's not that I might get caught out. It's that I couldn't, I couldn't live with myself if I hurt her after she's given me so much. Do you see? That's the Christian instinct. In view of God's mercy, is that an instinct in your life? Or is it all about fear? If you don't know that instinct, I'd love to talk to you. Have you come and find the joy of salvation of a God who has loved us so much, who's been so merciful? Therefore, after all I've said, after I've all I've talked about the mercy and grace of God, as an overflow of knowing that, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to this God. Next. The end of verse 1, this is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. Now, there's a couple of Greek words here that are a little bit, um, you, you can translate them a few different ways and you'll see different versions translate them different ways. Just to focus on the, the little phrase there in the version we're using, the true and proper. So that little phrase, true and proper, it's the translation of a Greek word, lo, uh, <laughs> I always mispronounce this, uh, logikos. Logikos. Um, logikos. And this is your logikos worship. This is your logikos service, uh, temple service worship. This is your logikos service. Now, when you hear that, I mean, it's tricky to kind of, should you translate logikos as reasonable or spiritual or inner? How do you translate that little Greek word? Um, can you hear a word in it that registers for us? Logikos. What, says it, what word's in that for us? Logical. And so you can see how oh, this is your logical worship, your reasonable worship. You can see how this, where we get this. But let me try and give you some sense of what's inherent in that word in the Greek. Um, it's the sense of this is your inner worship. This is a worship that involves your inner being of mind and heart, as opposed to a worship where you're just going through the motions where you're just putting it on and you're just reading prayers and just doing stuff and there's no engagement of head and heart. This is your logikos worship. Um, or it's, 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 this is your logikos worship. This is your worship that's appropriate to being a human made in the image of God who's got a mind and a heart and a spiritual nature. This is the kind of worship that makes sense for you, who you are as a human, whose mind, head, heart and spiritual nature. You see how those kind of ideas can are captured up in this word logikos. Now, I, I say all of this because, and it's confirmed, I might add to at the end of verse, or halfway through verse 2, that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The mind matters in the Christian faith. 
Becoming a Christian is not lopping off your head and just feeling things. The New Testament is often talking about the importance of the way you think. Logikos worship. It's a rational worship. It's, a, it's an inner worship, an engaged mind worship. Um, it, now, the point I'm making here is that it's not irrational. Biblical worship's not irrational. And that's important for us to hear in our cultural context because there's a new movement has come through in the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, a new movement called the Praise and Worship Movement. It's even got a little label for it, the Praise and Worship Movement. And now there's much that's wonderful in that, and I'll come to that in a second. But one of the things that's come along with this Praise and Worship Movement is the idea that worship only happens when I sing and it only happens in a certain kind of singing. The singing where I'm not just praising God, you see praise and worship, I'm not just praising God but I'm moving into a worshipful experience where I'm now caught up into a, into a mystical union where I'm being touched by the Spirit and it's now gone beyond my mind. It's this, it's this thing that just goes straight into who I am and I'm now really worshipping God. And it trades on a thinking that worship is about an irrational experience. And I want you to notice that Paul says, Paul says, that the worship that's true worship is a logikos worship. Is a worship that at least engages the mind. And is all of life. Is all of life. Because worship, the thing he says that's logikos worship, is offering your body as a living sacrifice, not singing. It's giving your whole life over to him as your worship. Don't reduce it to the time you walk into the building. And when, do, when does the worship start? It started when you woke up this morning. It started with how you treated people around you, your family, how you thought about your day and your party, how you drove your car, how you came in and spoke with people or didn't speak with you. There's, that's, the worship's been going all day. And will continue when you leave the building. It'll continue tomorrow at work. How you work, how you engage as a worker is worship, depending on whether you are on the altar or you've crawled back off again. This is your logikos worship. It's all of life. Don't reduce it to the singing. Now, this is not to say that your singing is not worship. Be engaged. Raise your hands. Be captivated by the things of God as you sing them. Um, bring your heart to bear in the words. Be involved emotionally, yes. But let's not sing songs where we aim to get rid of the mind. It's one of the reasons in this place we work at not having um, uh, song light. You know, songs that have so little content that you can just, through the repetition, get caught up. No, 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 no. We want sufficient content that you're engaged, that your emotions are triggered by the truth of what was... That's why we have music to singing. Because the music's a way to actually foster a, a healthy engagement of head and heart. But think. Think. And then be aware when you sit down that the way you give your money is worship. Are you on the altar as you give money? Are you giving... As someone dead to self and alive to God, captivated by His purposes, that's your spiritual worship in the way you give your money. Are you captivated in the way you worship God and the way you then speak with people at the end of church? 
and the way you speak with people around you, the way you work with everything. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, in view of all he's done for you, give everything to him. This is your worship. There's the first verse. Let's do verse 2. This is now filling out verse 1. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you see what he's saying? Um, Offer your bodies a living sacrifice. What that means is, don't be conformed and be transformed. Don't be conformed, it's the negative. Give him your life and if you do lay down your life on the altar, because he's been so merciful to you, you will necessarily swim against the tide. You will be a person now who swims very differently to the people around you. That is essential to spiritual worship, that you not be conformed to the pattern of... What's the pattern of this world? Well, the pattern of this world, just in terms of looking at each other, humanly speaking, is living for our own selfish needs. That's the pattern of the world. The pattern of the world is making myself the centre and doing what I do to get satisfaction for me, doing what I do to get meaning for me. You know, I might serve other people, but I do it to find the satisfaction that I want in life. It's about me in the end. That's the pattern of this world. It's, it's, it's firing up at others who disagree with me because I've got to be self-assertive. That's the pattern of this world. You go, you go, girl, you go, guy. It's shooting without checking first. It's, it's greed. These are the patterns of the world. Don't be conformed with that anymore. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Don't be conformed. Be different. But more profoundly and more importantly, the pattern of this world is rebellion. My life in rebellion to God lived on my terms. That's the pattern of this world. Not a life bowing the knee to God and living on His terms, but living on my terms. Rebellion to him is the pattern of the world. Don't be conformed to that. And be transformed. Be transformed. The, the Greek word here is one that you may have heard of. It's metamorphized. It's, a, it's a, such a profound transformation that we use it in geology of rocks that are you know, metamorphized or, or um, a caterpillar that is transformed into a butterfly. Total transformation. God is about transform, changing you into something profoundly better. Now, how? How does this change happen? Look at verse 2, halfway through. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices because of the mercy of God. Um, This is your your logikos worship. This is your reasonable, this is the worship that engages head and heart. Be transformed, how? By the renewing of your head. By the renewing of your mind. And this is the last one. The Christian life is about changing the way you think. Changing your whole self-perception. Your whole understanding of the universe. The whole way you think about God. Everything being changed. And it is worth noting that this focus on the mind is radically different again. We've, um, 
We've had fads and fashions through church life over the decades, over the centuries, and one of the recent fads, uh, in line a little bit with the praise and worship movement, one of the fads that's come through is a critique of churches being too cerebral. Churches are too much into thinking. I want a church that's more into feeling and experiences, and that's been quite a critique. Now, there's some legitimacy to that critique. You know, there's, there's some truth to that. But, but that's been the big critique. Churches have got, they, they you know, that's a teaching by church. They've got a lot of Bible at that church. We're a whatever church. So these kinds of fads come through. You know, church is too cool and too, not trendy, but too um, cold and rational. Um, but with all of that, you have Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind matters. It's the key, says Paul, to transformation. Now, now, what Paul doesn't, I dare say, he doesn't mean the key to transformation is filling your head with lots of knowledge. He's not saying the key to transformation is knowing the answers to tough questions. He's not saying the key to transformation is getting full marks in a theological quiz. There are lots of people who have been through theological college who know all the answers who haven't been transformed at all. No, 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 no. What, he's, what I'd suggest he's saying is it's a renewal of the whole way you think, a transformation, therefore, of your whole inner being. And I want to give you a little picture here that uh, I found helpful over the years. Um, this comes from a friend, Murray Capel, who was the principal of Reformed Theological College in Geelong, now in Melbourne. Um, but he has this a little image of the human heart. So as he searches the scriptures, he sees in the human heart, the way the Bible talks about the human heart, he offers has these four faculties. That the Bible, when it talks about the human heart, means the mind, the conscience, the will and the affections, the passions. Um, and note, so, so there's the first observation, which I think is correct. Second observation is he offers that there's a relationship between the mind and the affections. Notice how the passions are at the bottom of the heart. What he's wanting to say is that God's purpose for you is not just to transform the way you think, it's to transform what you love. It's to transform the things you are passionate about. It's to transform your convictions. God really wants to transform you so that you, you love obedience to Him and hate rebellion. Not just you think one's right and one's wrong, but that you love serving God and hate disobeying. That's where he wants to get us, to have passions that are aligned with him. So, so that I just have a, an overflow of the heart to want to please God, that's where he wants to get us. But here's the insight. The way you get to change the passions of a person is through the mind. God has made us the way we are and he addresses us with a word that's apprehended by our comprehension of it. He speaks words to us, empowered by his spirit, and it's by understanding those words, we then transform our conscience and our wills to be aligned, which then filter down into our passions, our loves, our hates, our hungers, our convictions. And the danger is that we can, we can buy, bypass the mind and just want to go to the conscience or the will or the passions straight away and you can't. And so one of the things that happens in modern Christian world is that we just want to, we want to change the passions, yes, so we'll tell an amazing story from the internet. 
that'll move you. No, you get emotionalism, that path. You don't get transformation. Or, or we'll make you feel guilty and bang your conscience. And you just get, you get a, a form of legalism. Uh, you, 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 you get a, a whole perversion of the Christian life. But if you go through the biblical mind into the human head so that we reframe the way we think about everything so that I start to work on my conscience and my will to transform my affections. If you go through that path, you get genuine transformation. God is intent on making you new. And he's wrestling, wrestling, he's wrestling. The, the challenge for us is that our heads, our conscience, our will and our affections are all messed up. They're all perverted and corrupted by sin. I don't think like I ought to think. My conscience doesn't register when it ought to register. I not have the ability to will what I... And my passions are all aligned badly. The whole thing's messed up. And to change all of that, sin's polluted it all. To change all of that is to start in the Word. To, to, to actually bring ourselves to God and His way of seeing me. And his way of wanting me to be. And, and the scriptures become for us a mirror that I can go to and learn what I am in sin, what I need to be in Christ, to actually wrestle with what's going on in my head and heart, that I'm reacting the way I'm reacting, to actually grow emotional maturity, so spiritual maturity. And the key to this is filling our heads and our hearts with God's thoughts. His views, and the only place to do that is in the Word, because that's where His thoughts are found. Now, right there, it bites. Right there, it bites. Because to truly do this work takes work. It actually takes effort and humility. Humility to come to the Scriptures and let it teach me and engage actively not pass actively with the word. Is it really saying that? Have I always thought, how does it correct me? How have I misunderstood things? How can I be changed by this engagement with the scriptures? Our danger is that we come to the Bible wanting it to say what I've always thought. And if you're in that place where you just come to the scriptures wanting to tick off the things that you've always understood, you will not change. Or, or the danger is I come to it so superficially with so little time, it just doesn't do any work in me. You know, if you have a 20... This explains our church, actually. Why do we as a church spend so much time going through this verse? Because it's in that place that we hear what it's actually saying, we properly begin to change the way we think, we spend time in it. You can't do that in 20 minutes. A 20-minute sermonette produces Christianettes. You just, you just can't get there with that little time. And that's why we encourage you to be in a small group with other Christians to read the Bible together and see what others are seeing, what other insights you're having in the text to help correct ways in which you've misunderstood yourself and God and His purposes. If you're, in, if you're not spending time in any of those things, you will never know the transformation that God intends for you. The glory that awaits in becoming more like Christ... And the outcome of all of this is that you'll then be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. 
the outcome of this is that you won't need God to tell you what to do every day. You'll know. Quick little hit on guidance. Again, there's been a fad about guidance in recent times where to truly be in relationship with God by the Spirit, you need to hear Him tell you what to do each day. But what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 is saying, no, 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 if you engage in the Scriptures in a deep and profound, holistic way and let it transform the whole way you see the world and yourself, you'll have the mind of Christ. You'll know what He wants you to do. You won't need to wait for a word. You'll instinctively know what to love and what to hate and what you should do, how to decide, whether to prioritise working more or working less, whether to prioritise giving my money there. or we don't, You don't need to pray for guidance on it, you'll know. Brothers and sisters, here's the big thing. Come to God as you are. But He wants you to come to change because what we are is corrupted by sin now he's made it so you can be forgiven wherever you are come as you are but he's coming as as you come he wants to remake you free you from sin make you more like Christ the glorious thing that you're intended and made to be and that will happen as you enter into the word of God in a deep way you give yourself over to transformation and renewal of the mind You'll become like Christ day by day. And that is precious. It is liberating, empowering, clarifying, strengthening. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your determination to bring us back from the perversity of sin that we've lived in. And to rescue us to be like Jesus, to transform us. Thank you for your determination to do that. And we thank you, you've given us everything necessary. We do pray, of course, that you might come again soon to bring us the full redemption of our bodies. But we pray while we wait that you would help us please give ourselves to your word, that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might daily, therefore, gladly give ourselves as living sacrifices to you and not crawl off, but to find great life there and that all of this might be pleasing to you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.